Have you ever wanted to be a guest on These Are Their Stories? Tell us your favorite detective team? Spot the Hey It's That Guy? Enter the These Are Your Stories contest. One lucky listener will be chosen to join us and review a show from TV's most enduring crime franchise. And talk about the real-life story that inspired the show. Go now to lawandorderpodcast.com. Fill out the questionnaire and tell us why you should be our very special guest star. Do you have a Raphael Barba tattoo? Do you write Van Buren fan fiction? Did Ice-T cut you in line at Whole Foods? We'll pick an extra special episode just for you. Enter now for your chance to be part of our elite squad. See our website for details. No purchase necessary. We don't actually sell shit. Sign up now for the These Are Your Stories contest. And if you tell us you love Amaro, you're dead to us. For exclusive podcasts and more, sign up at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. This week's Law & Order Marathon winner is Kara So of Lincoln, Massachusetts. Kara will get a marathon decal showing she watched 26.2 hours of her favorite crime show. To be next week's winner, sign up at lawandorderpodcast.com. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Aaron Fox. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedure, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspire their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at The Mothership, Season 4, Episode 17, Mayhem. We got another homicide, 15th and 2nd. We're going for a record. What scares me is the day's not over yet. Joining me to do just that is true crime author and the host of Crime Writers On and Netflix's You Can't Make This Up podcasts, Rebecca Lavoy. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Kevin. I'm looking forward to the day where I can be a podcaster on a horse, like one of those kind of podcasts. You mean like the, the, the cops, cops we see in the horses. beginning? Yeah, yeah. Be, yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, that's what everybody aspires to, I guess. And rounding out our panel is our special guest, former TVGuide.com reporter and three-time, <gasps> three-time returning champ, Aaron Fox. Hello, Aaron. Hi, I'm so excited to be back, you guys. Such a thrill, especially with this episode. Yeah, happy 2021. Mm. Barba's back. Stabler's back. But screw all of that. Tell us about your dog. (laughs) (laughs) My adorable uh, sheep-a-doodle, 10-month-old sheep-a-doodle, who is not only a dog that has dwarfism, he enjoys (laughs) eating masks. Oh, man. I love that dwarf That dog. is so 2020. You got to move along from Very that. Very brand. It's so 2020s, yeah. Aaron, remind us of all the franchises. Which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective team. I I'm, I still love Stable and Benson. I know. It's so... It's so 2020 um, <laughs> <laughs> to love Stabler. It's so 2013, but... Yeah, I know. It's 2013, but I love them. I will always love them. I love their dynamic. I love their, like, just messed up, messy, gross relationship. It makes me very happy. Are you looking forward to seeing how Stabler comes back and how he's, you know, written as his, you know, older character, maybe wiser, maybe, you know... Maybe widowered. Maybe. 
maybe on Xanax, you know, who knows? <laughs> Let's hope he's been medicated. He looks like, if you see his Insta, like, it is like, he is ripped and scary looking for this yeah. part. So I am like, you know, live his aged gracefully somewhat. And, um, you know, she's got this kid now and I, I, I just want to see how they explain, like, how do you just write Semper Fi and disappear for seven years? Like, I just yeah. don't understand it. Like, and just disappear from each other's lives and not say, like, what's up? Oh, you had a kid? Congrats. I have advice on that. Uh, I have some retcon ideas on exactly. that. But, you know, the one thing that was always missing from Stabler's character Roid rage. Yeah. Uh, and Aaron, who's your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite law and order district attorney prosecutorial team. I love um, Stephanie March. Alexandra Cabot. Because she's, uh, she's a, a boss bitch. I love her. Like, I just mm. want, I just want her to rip every misogynistic guy's head off like she that's what I feel like she's there to do like Mm -hmm. Novak feels like a little bit like preachy sometimes a little bit I don't know she's stiff and weird and I like I like the badass bitchery of Cabot so I'm like I'm going yeah well she did take a DNA test and she is 100% that bitch bitch. yes (laughs) I I sang that on New Year's Eve and my husband looked at me like what (laughs) like yeah Lizzo All right, now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, Law & Order Season 4, Episode 17, Mayhem. Logan and Briscoe are called to Battery Park, where a guy was found dead in his car, shot in the head. Jerome, tell us you saw the whole thing. The guy gave me ten bucks. And you went swimming in it. Ten dollars? That's a lot of money. I had to celebrate. After the party, did you see anything? St. Francis of Assisi. He told me to keep up the good work. Right. Yeah, I've been there, pal. They find a bra in the back seat, and what a dink! because the cops just found a topless woman trying to hail a cab. <laughs> Jill says she met Ken Schofield in a club as they hooked up in his car. She said there was this guy in thick black glasses checking them out, and she fled after hearing the shots. Their best witness is Zelda the Bag Lady, who says a guy with glasses was waiting on the park bench before the shooting. And a grocer says a guy in black glasses came in, ranting about the world, and tore up a parking ticket for his tan Chevy. On their way back, the detectives are flagged down by a crowd and a man screaming pain from the window. As they go into the apartment, Luisa D'Angelo cold cocks Logan with a frying pan. <laughs> and speaking of cold cock... Uh, she had just <laughs> she has just sliced off her cheating husband's penis and thrown it out the window. He dies on the way to the hospital. Her lawyer claims Angela suffers from battered wife syndrome. Meantime, that parking ticket probably belonged to Scott Hexter, a guy with thick black glasses. He won't tell him where he was last night, so Van Buren gets a warrant for his place. The murder weapon is a forty-four, and Hexter owns a twenty-two which is exactly one half if you're into math. <laughs> uh, Jill fails to pick him out of a lineup, and Zelda's nowhere to be found, and that's when they get a call of a third homicide, and it's not even lunch. All right, this episode is a format breaker. Yep. I'll explain why it was written this way in the second half, because it's a really interesting story, but the action takes place all in one day. The dunk-dunk card is replaced with a running clock, mm, right? and it's almost entirely from the cop's point of view. Plus, you know, we also get a lot of 
Profaci. Profaci. Where's Cassidy, though? That's what I want to know. It's not in this show. The show's called Mayhem, though. Isn't he Mayhem? I know. That's what I said. Poor Kevin was like, no, that was last week. Mayhem was last week. Mayhem was last week, yes. (laughs) All right, so I call bullshit even that in the 1990s it would take hours for someone to call about a topless woman walking around New York on a winter night trying to get a cab. No way. No you, way. You obviously did not grow up in the greater New York area. That shit happens <laughs> all the time and especially like in the 80s and 90s. No big deal. <laughs> NBD, as the kids say. Yeah. <laughs> when they find a bra at a crime scene, do you try to fit suspects like Cinderella? <laughs> <laughs> I would. I, I, I would hope not these days. Back then, they probably tried to. I mean, the whole like cold opening and the cops, the jokes were like, like 101 in like misogyny and like. You Briscoe and Logan? Yeah. Station just radioed in. Someone picked up a half naked girl trying to hail a cab. Hope she didn't catch a cold. Hooker jokes and, um, and homeless guy jokes. It's like, yes. let's knock them all down. And it is, it looks cold AF in this episode. It is freezing. It is snowing. Everybody's miserable. They looked way too comfortable for it being that cold, is my yeah. thing. <laughs> so a boob, like a topless girl in that weather would would raise some flags, for sure. Here's the thing, though, Kevin. You know how you can't, do you know why you can't do the fitting like Cinderella thing with a bra? Why? Well, our friends at Third Love tell us oh, that everyone up. wears the wrong size bra, <laughs> so that wouldn't work anyway. <laughs> Stop giving them free advertising, Rebecca. <laughs> So, by the way, Logan is dripping in snatch. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So first we hear him talk about this uh, physical therapist girlfriend, mm. which is probably 1990s code for hooker, right? Mm. Uh, sex uh, worker. Sex worker, thank you. <laughs> hey, you remember that physical therapist I was seeing last month? Dr. Magic Fingers? Yeah, well, after she heard a message on my machine from Tina, I was lucky she wasn't packing a pistol. And I didn't drag her up from Texas. Give me her number. I'm into pain. Uh, <laughs> so this woman overhears a call, hmm. right? And then that old bag lady Zelda is throwing her Civil War puss in his face. <laughs> 20 minutes on the boardwalk with Zelda, you'd know what's what. Yeah, I'm sure he would, Zelda. Maybe later after we solve this murder case. I was so, like, delighted by that turn of events. Like, she was all over that. Zelda will make you feel all better. Mm. Like, You'll know what's what. <laughs> <laughs> just like, wow, she had zero shame. You go, girl. Oh, the 90s. Back when you could call the homeless bag ladies and bums, right? Rummies. <laughs> that was that one came up. Christ. <laughs> <laughs> So not okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. There is this subplot about Briscoe wanting to get out on time. Oh, so tense. Find this guy or not, 7 o'clock tonight, I'm checking out, because I got two courtside for the Knicks Rockets. Where'd you get the dough to sit in Spike Lee territory? <laughs> a couple of years ago, a 15-year-old ticket scalper outside the garden. I looked the other way. Worked out nice for both of us. Well, hey, you want me to book you now or after the game? Hey, hey, I paid for him. This is all I could think about the whole episode. Me too. I this was is like really <laughs> invested in that Knicks game. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> if they're doing well this year, let him out. TikTok, right. TikTok, it's so TikTok, rare. TikTok. You'll never see that again. <laughs> and it was like the golden age of the Knicks. He mentions John Starks. We had Patrick Ewing. Right. I mean, this was like the only time in my lifetime right. where the Knicks were watchable and you had to be there. And it's all I could think about. I I felt I just had this dread knowing. I mean, you know, he's not going to make it right. And I just had this dread the whole time, just knowing that was going to be the case. It made me sick to my stomach. 
Like halfway through, we hear that his pal can't go. On the floor. Okay. Thanks. Two on the floor. So Mrs. Schwinger can get her electrolysis tomorrow night. You sure? Right. It's your lucky day. What makes you think I'm so easy? And he treats Logan like sloppy seconds, (laughs) which is exactly how Logan was treating that massage therapist. (laughs) Well played. So checking out our cast, we have a repeat offender. Hmm. Repeat offender. Uh, playing Scott Hexter is Tom Reese Farrell. I, I didn't kill anybody. He was in the Criminal Intent episode, Eosphorus. It's fucking guys and their names over at Criminal Intent. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, we covered that when he was playing the reverend who was so embarrassed by his mom, who was a famous atheist. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid, yeah. Uh, who know you could be famous for being an atheist? <laughs> but we do have a, a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. We actually got a bunch of Hey, It's That Girls. Uh, who is playing the sharp tongue Louisa D'Angelo? Does anybody know? Now just answer his yeah, question. Mr. Cop here, what is it? All you macho studs in it together? Huh? If it was me that was missing, you'd wait 24 hours before you sent someone. That one I don't know. Louisa G- D. Wait, wait, what? The, the dick cutter. <laughs> yeah. Lorena. Oh, yeah. Lorena. Oh, yeah. She yeah. looks very familiar, but I don't know her name. Yeah. That's Catherine Narducci. Uh, she was Artie Bucco's wife, uh, Charmaine, on The Sopranos. Remember, Artie was the one that owned the restaurant. Yeah. Yes. Rebecca never saw The Sopranos, so she has no fucking idea what we're talking True. about. <laughs> she was also Carrie Buffalino in The Irishman. Huh. So oh. we got to see her ride in the back seat of the car with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci for like seven fucking hours. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Driving from New York to, I don't know, where was it, Florida, something mm. like that. So when she was 10 years old... Her father, Nicky Narducci, was killed in a mob hit in front of his bar. No way. Wait. So she's really method, I guess. <laughs> I don't think you need to be method. That, that's not what method is. Method is when you have to pretend that you don't know oh, the thing. It's when you shoot your father and get into character. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Totally. <laughs> it was pretty woke casting then. That I Sopranos suppose. thing must have been some serious PTSD for her. I mean, that's uh, some stuff went down in that restaurant, as I recalled. Some... Yeah, she could like, tell the script people, no, that's not how it goes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so did you spot the actress playing Dory, the wife of murder victim Ken Schofield? Did he have any enemies? We didn't even have any friends. We were always working. I just called her fake Nicole Kidman the whole time, like mm. with the hair. She looked exactly like Nicole Kidman, but that's not who it is. Do you know? I know that she played like a hippie on Dharma and Greg, right? Yes. <laughs> that's the only thing I don't know her name. Right. Her name's wow. Shane DeLand. She played Dharma's best friend, Jane, mm. for 90 episodes on Dharma and Discount Greg. Discount Phoebe. Discount <laughs> Phoebe, yeah. <laughs> that's better than fake Nicole Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about a topless Jill Templeton? Rebecca, you are dying to give us this one. Yes, that is proto Kristen Stewart, Robin Tunney of The Craft, one of the greatest <laughs> 90s witch movies ever made. Proto Kristen Stewart. That's amazing. <laughs> we were in the car and some lunatic was staring at us. So Ken told him to get the hell out of there. And the next thing I know, the guy pulls out a gun and... Wait, can we just talk for a second? Because the whole time I'm like, oh, it's that girl from The Cutting Edge in West Wing. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong. I'm like, Moira Kelly? That's her name, right? I don't know why I get those two mixed up. But yeah, duh, The Craft, because I just watched the second Craft. Hmm. 
that would no thank you <laughs> but yeah um she uh she's been in a lot of stuff but i just kept thinking oh the mentalist i should have known that yeah because, yeah know. most recently as fbi agent tara Lipson, patrick's love interest for seven seasons on the mentalist never saw that of course fans of the craft are always pissed because they say charmed was a ripoff of the movie yeah it was. And Robin yeah. says, to okay. this day, she says to this day, yeah, people think I was in Charmed. Oh, God, that sucks. That is not what I want to be known for. Uh, only, if, only if people mix you up with Doherty, though. I love me some Shannon Doherty. Yeah. The disdain that she has for everything she does. Like, I want to be her so badly. So who's playing Teresa, the crack house snitch? He wanted me to go party with him, but I ain't like that. See, because I got at least like the guy. You know I know. Oh All God! Right. I I this was driving me crazy. I was like, I know this girl. I don't know where to find her. I want to say she was in maybe a David E. Kelly show or something. Um, I I know I don't know her. Yeah, you'll remember her most as Kaylee Roberts from Dangerous Minds. Nope. She was the only really <laughs> smart girl in the class, but had a dropout because she got pregnant. And so check off that stereotype box. That's right. Another white savior movie. Right? This, yes. is, this is Michelle Pfeiffer. This, that was yes. like based off a of school where I grew up. So yes. Really? Were they playing Gangster's Paradise in the hallways? <laughs> well, that's the funny thing. I have friends that went to that school and they were like, it really wasn't that bad. Did you have Dylan Dylan contests like Michelle Pfeiffer made those kids do? Oh, God. (laughs) Yeah, I thought maybe Dangerous Minds, too, but I thought maybe David E. Kelly. But close because Michelle Pfeiffer. Yes. There you go. I get a half point. (laughs) Sorry, five degrees of... David E. Kelly? Dave, five degrees. Five degrees of Callista Flockhart? Callista Flockhart. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> Got to get Harrison Ford in there. Hey, who's playing Zelda, the bag lady? Your mom? Oh, I- hey. <laughs> Last night, it was just me and him and that couple in the car. I went to get a cup of coffee. I heard the shot. Bang. I looked through the bushes. And there he was, waving a gun around like a maniac. Isn't it that lady that was the ghost, that saw the ghost in Ghostbusters? Yes, yes, yes. Her name is Alice Drummond. She was in one of the most iconic film scenes of the 80s. She played the frightened librarian in the opening scene of Ghostbusters. Oh, my God. The one with all the hair blows back. Iconic. Yeah, Yeah. iconic. I'm so glad I got that because I was like, I think it's Ghostbusters, lady. (sighs) Nice job. Uh, she also played Monica and Ross's Nana in Friends, really? in which she dies, and Ross kisses her goodbye, and then she moves, oh, and God. then he runs out and tells the family that Nana's not dead, and he goes back and says, oh, no, she actually is dead, so Nana dies twice. Oh, <laughs> Really? Yeah. Hmm. But that's a deep cut, because she's not even listed in the credits, because she never had a line. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. All right, oh. how about this one? Does anyone recognize court clerk number one? <laughs> Now Which one was number here. one? He was the one who would read all this stuff saying... Case number 454312, People versus Omar Cabezas. Charges are murder in the second degree, assault in the second degree, possession in the second degree. The hot guy. He was way too handsome to be the court clerk. That's all I kept thinking. <laughs> I don't okay. know who it is. That's Michael Knopf, brother of Christopher Knopf. <gasps> Shot it. No yeah. wonder he was handsome. Five oh. Law & Order appearances, all of them as the court clerk. Uh, his last episode was episode one of season six, which is the first one with with Curtis, so without Logan. Oh. So he must have shown up at work that day and said, where's my brother? He Ooh. lost his hookup. Lost his hookup. <laughs> he said, we're throwing you one more bone. <laughs> All right, so I first saw Law & Order 
at uh, 10, 16 p.m. on Wednesday, March 9th, 1994. Mm -hmm. I remember because my girlfriend was watching and I walked in on the scene with Angela. Mm -hmm. And uh, she explained what the whole show was about, the concept as cops in the beginning, uh, you know, the trial in the second half. Of course, that never happened in this episode, but... You do remember a scene where a guy's dick gets cut off. Yes. So, <laughs> so it starts with them entering the apartment, and then she jumps out of nowhere and hits Logan on the shoulder with a pan. Amazing. Hello? Police! Please, drop it! The crazy son of a bitch! Let's go show him! It's assault on a police officer! What drop the, the pan! Do anyway? Shut up! Oh, no, he's the one who's Shut arrested. up! God almighty. I mean, it's like it's like she's channeling all the anger of that massage therapist that he's been cheating on this whole time. <laughs> she's the OG Rapunzel. Like, yeah. If you ever saw Tangled, she she whacks the crap out of people with frying pans. My kids think it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> she's also not helping them find the penis. Angelo, you can get rid of all these troops in a minute. Just tell us where. Mike, how, why don't you call that tramp Connie Bucci up? She likes it so much. Let her slip it out. Dogs can do that, you know. That okay, we've heard enough of your crap. <laughs> <laughs> but they do find it, though. I'm yeah. really impressed with the detectivery going on there down the sidewalk. She wants Connie to come and sniff it out. Because <laughs> dogs can do that, you know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> That was so great. <gasps> Bitches, we got it the first time. <laughs> we got it. <laughs> Kevin, did you catch the throwaway line when they found the dick on the street? <laughs> you find it? Yeah. Well, get it on ice and over to St. Vincent's. It's tack on littering, too. <laughs> For Lorena's charges, tack on littering. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I kept wanting to say... It's already on ice, right? Yeah, it's, it's pretty cold out there. Yeah. They're like, well, it fell into the snow, didn't it? So pack it like a snow cone? Yes. Probably yes. snow. Yes. Snowball that bad boy up. One of my favorite things that happens in this episode is Van Buren. What kind of life is this guy going to have without... What? You know. <laughs> Maybe he's got loftier pursuits. Like what? You think he plays the clarinet? I hope he plays the clarinet. <laughs> and they're like, what do you think he plays the clarinet or something? <laughs> As if that is the only thing a dickless man could possibly do. Well, I think it was I think it was AVB who pointed out that he's probably not going to be fine without his dick. <laughs> Seriously, it was, it was kind of like, well, what's his hobby going to be? Especially if he's been sweating up the sheets with every whore north of, uh, <laughs> north of Houston. And then they pick the clarinet, the nerdiest, yet sort of phallic instrument yeah. to talk about. The problem is he can't play with his clarinet. <laughs> and, then, and then Discount Lorena is in this police station, and the cop walks in and he's like, It's a homicide. It's a homicide. And she's like, What is he saying? What is he saying? And I'm like, He was speaking English, Lorena. <laughs> <laughs> like, I understood what he was saying. We had to say it like this, uh, It's a homicide. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, they really made her not the sharpest tool in the shed, and it was <laughs> no. But she what had mean, the sharpest. She had the sharpest tool in the shed. <laughs> All right now, let's look at the second half of this episode. Well, their third murder of the day is at a family-owned Asian market where a customer shot Dad and made off with some money. The son says the shooter had been in yesterday cashing a check. Disability check, Drew Washington. How about where he spent? I, I saw you. No, no, no. She doesn't know. He's a crackhead. There's a local supply shop on 16th Street. Let's go pay a visit. The detectives search for Drew Washington takes him to a crack house where they get his real address. They arrive to find Washington shot through the heart. Homicide victim number four. 
A scream leads them to the laundry room at a standoff with Omar Sabases, in which Logan says, quote, put the burrito down, senor. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, a detective from Queens tells them about another Lover's Lane murder in which Hexter fit the witness description. He had no alibi, but he was only worried about his mother finding out. So they dig in and find out Hexter got a parking ticket in Queens 15 minutes before that murder. He is still vague on what he was doing that night, and he cries like a little bitch at the thought of them digging into his life. Mm, oh, my God. Mom. That's when Mr. Burrito yells that he's still hungry, <laughs> slips out of the cage, starts running around on all the tables in the squad room, and then he's taken down by Logan, who shoves a bagel in his mouth, cookie monster style. <laughs> <laughs> True. Kincaid arraigns Mr. Burrito, Four Eyes, and the Dick Slayer. Uh, <laughs> Angela ignores her lawyer and pleads guilty to her husband's death, but Claire cuts her a deal, no pun intended. <laughs> Who am I fooling? It was pun intended, absolutely. While Hexter sits at Rikers, the cops learn his car was in a hit and run uptown the same time as Schofield's murder. They can't figure out why he still won't come clean, and Stone's reluctant to prosecute him. Briscoe and Logan learned that Hexter was in a car with his secret boyfriend, and he didn't want his mom to know he's gay. Zelda confirms that Hexter was not the man she saw on the park bench. So the detectives go to Rikers to release Hexter, only to find he was shanked in the mess hall over a bologna sandwich. <laughs> well, they finally punch out, and Briscoe has missed his basketball game, and Logan says it won't be long before the real 44 shooter kills again. Hmm. All right, a few things. Mr. Black Glasses, the 44 killer, does come back. Uh, this that Those murders, are, they come back in season 10 wow. of oh. a two-part SVU crossover. Rebecca, you remember the episode we did where Stabler and, and, and Benson come on, on Law With & Order? Briscoe and Green. Yeah, Briscoe and Green. And Green is like his giant hands are holding that tiny coffee cup. Yeah. I remember that one very <laughs> well. Yeah, of course, his giant hands. <laughs> the episode right before that, the previous week, it was a two-parter, starts on SVU. And Craig comes back over to and and that and and they were looking at this case, so it does come back. You have really been diving deep into that Law and Order Wiki community, Kevin. Yeah, I'm very impressed. That's oh, impressive. Well, I picked this is one of the reasons why I, I uh, picked up uh, this episode because it, it's got a lot of great things. Plus, on Law and Order, they did the all cop multiple cases in one day format again in season thirteen. Mm -hmm. Three murders, a kidnapping, a cold case, and Briscoe delivers a baby. I remember that one. And as they're leaving at the end of the show, they get a call about a jumper. And that transitions into the next episode, which was called Smoke. And it's one we covered with you, Aaron Fox, ah, that is in right. 2016. Woo! All right. So why was this episode formatted this way? Because Michael Moriarty went crazy. <laughs> Are you ready for a story, kids? Oh, yeah. Spill the tea. Okay. Tea. Sit back. <laughs> you should see Kevin is like literally rubbing his hands together. Right yeah, now. I know. By the way, Aaron, we recently did a, a Zoom fundraiser, uh, which um, that was- We attended We one. attended one <laughs> with the cast members of Law & Order. And SVU. Well, okay. It was Dan Flurk, Chris Knopf, Esapatha Murkison, Jill Hennessy- Carol McCormick. Mm -hmm. They talked. Carol McCormick, yeah. Ca yeah, they talked about certain things from there. Uh, Dan Florek said that Moriarty wanted to do all of his takes with no one else on the set <laughs> when they do like that cross thing because he was afraid you would steal his energy by looking at his eyes. Yeah, so he always would look at the person's forehead. 
so they wouldn't steal his soul or some shit like that. And like now when you watch it, it's like, oh yeah, he's always like looking up. He he's is. Like, not looking in the eyes, he's looking in the forehead. Remember what Dan Florek said they did to solve the problem? Because the actors didn't want to be in the scene with him. They'd put a, a tin pie plate on a stick and he would act with the tin pie plate <laughs> on the stick. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I was disappointed in that Zoom call that Chris Knopf did not volunteer that he got into a fist fight with Moriarty at the season two wrap-up party uh, at a big uh, fancy restaurant. I feel like it at that. It had to be broken up by Paul Servino. <laughs> big no. Paul Servino coming in between them. Okay. I loved how Esipatha Murkison, she was so classy. She was just like, every time someone would talk shit about uh, Moriarty, she'd be like, Mm-hmm. Uh, then, she then, said, if you can't say anything. Just don't say it. She said, if I can't say anything nice, I'm not just I'm not gonna say anything at all. And then she sat there silent for like six minutes, just oh. going, mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> oh see her eyes. Okay. Okay, so this all starts off when Dick Wolf, Michael Moriarty, and some other TV figures met with Attorney General Janet Reno. And she complained that there was too much violence on TV. And was musing about legislation to do something about that. So <laughs> Moriarty interpreted that is that she wanted to cancel law and order and specifically to end his career personal. <laughs> oh, wow. So he rallied. He went to the press and he, he talked about uh, Reno. Dick Wolf, who was there, did not see this the same way. That wasn't how he interpreted it. <laughs> yeah. So while shooting the episode Breeder, Moriarty was on set. They're doing the trial. He started mumbling and laughing to himself at all of his lines during the cross-examination. And the director said he had this vacant look in his eyes, so they called his wife, and she came down to the set, and they told, told her, take him to a doctor. So something happened there, right? And we know the, today that he has you know, uh, mental health issues and he, alcoholism and things like that. But he's also a dick. We should he's just also say- a dick. <laughs> yeah. Both things can be true. Both things can be true. Uh, so they wrote this episode, Mayhem, so that they could give him time off. Huh. Now, instead, Moriarty thought that they were cutting him out of the scenes to force him off the show. And that's when he resigned from the show by fax. Wow. Whoa, oh, that is He didn't do it by six-second phone call like they always do on Law & Order. <laughs> okay, what? Dick Wolf hangs up. Hangs turns. up. Michael Moriarty just told me in a 15-minute explanation, which I only heard in six seconds, that he quits. Yeah. <laughs> Warren Littlefield also got the text. He calls Dick Wolf and says, did you did you see this? And, you know, oh, my God, he's the heart of the show. And, and Dick Wolf says, I've got two words for you. Sam Waterston. <laughs> exactly. That's literally true. Really? Yeah, so yeah. he's already been talking to Sam Waterston at this point? Oh, yeah. He wanted to bring Sam Waterston, or I don't know if he you know, had a yeah. commitment or something. So but are we saying that Michael Moriarty's paranoia was based in fact? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it was, you know, it was the right church, the wrong pew. Waterston Gate. Waterston Gate, yes. But, you oh, know. He was mad at Waterston, too, because one of the things that, you know, when they're talking about the new show, Dick Wolf said, you know, he's. Sam Waterston was bringing some sex appeal. Yeah. And and Mo- Michael Moriarty said, well, put it on my grave that Mike Moriarty was not as sexy as Sam Waterston. I will. I'm happy to to carve that damn gravestone. Michael Moriarty is so weird. Even though they gave him time off in this episode, can we just, like... He he does look like he's acting to a stick with a pan or whatever on the end of it, or like they do in green screen with the tennis ball. They just acted the tennis ball. Yes. I went for a ride. I was by myself. I was just driving. I'm sure that your lawyer has explained to you the value of an uncorroborated alibi. He has zero emotion. I just remember thinking to myself, oh, Jill Hennessy, come back to the screen because you're actually emoting and doing your job and you're really, really good here. Please come back. Because Michael Moriarty literally was like, 
What are we talking about? I think everything's fine. There's nothing I can take to the grand jury. It was so weird. All right, so to get a lead on Drew Washington, they go to this crack house and they find two people who might know something, but they're reluctant to talk. So they tell each witness, they'll let people think it was the other one who was the snitch. I don't want no trouble with the dude. Hey, anybody asks, we got it from her. Look, I like my face just like it is. All the pieces together, you know what I'm saying? Okay, well, if it comes up, he told us. Horrible. Yeah, I was so mad bad. at the police at first, but I'm like, if you're willing to let someone get stitches for your snitches, well, then you got to take the stitches for someone else's snitches. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> also, this is a great example of like the demonization of crack. Like this is a perfect scene that illustrates yeah. how the crack epidemic was treated very differently and is treated very differently by the media than the opioid epidemic. It's always like crack house full of people of color, down and out. It's always a woman who ends up being, like, the worst one, you know? Always. Well, Aaron, what was your take, though, that among those extras, people of color dressed, like, very poorly, there was one white guy in a necktie. It was like, (laughs) yeah. yeah, No shoving. This this isn't what you think. Yeah, I know. It's a meeting of the Rotary Club. I don't know why I was here. (laughs) I actually remember thinking to myself, this is not a typical guy. I saw a couple of white guys in there, and it was, but there was, you know, no white women, obviously. Um, Only this one black woman, and then a couple of black guys. But like, she was actually not acting super cracked out and they actually I feel like they brought down her performance and she's like I'm not, I'm not that way I have to actually like a person and I was like good on them it's not the typical <laughs> like I just gotta do what I gotta do for my fix you know exactly it's like, exactly you know I I thought it was interesting I actually made a note of that first of all there's white guys in the crack den and second of all, it was sort of close to where I used to live, so that was weird. And uh, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting that they played um, them against each other. With, I mean, I I don't feel like we got that conversation where they were gonna you do this and then I'll do this and then right. they'll they'll tell each other. It just happened, right. and you're like, these guys are dicks. So they track Drew Washington to his house. They find out he's been recently shot and they hear a scream and so they run down to the laundry and there is Omar and Logan tells him to drop the chalupa. <laughs> Burrito. <laughs> you! Freeze! Freeze! What the hell is that? Put the burrito down, senor. You'll, you'll die. Only if I eat that thing. Well, Don't you remember the, the, the ad campaign, Drop yeah. the Chalupa? It was really funny because... You had seen the episode already when I watched it. (laughs) They storm into the laundry room. I don't know where their squad of like uh, patrolmen went that came in the building. He said, wait here. They storm in. And the first thing I say was, is he holding a burrito? (laughs) (laughs) How hungry do you have to be to bring a burrito to a murder? (laughs) You have to be so hungry. Wrong drug, guys. The crack makes you not hungry. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still hungry because he starts freaking out in the holding camp. And then he goes nuts and he runs around everywhere. Gets tackled by Logan, who stuffs a bagel in his mouth and it goes everywhere. Profaci has to pull him off. Profaci. Profaci. <laughs> <laughs> And we all still think it's Stabler who's the one who's unhinged. Yeah. Logan is a, like not, I mean, I know that people love uh, Chris Noth. 
I am not a Sex and the City fan. I think it's a terrible show. Mm. I think the whole like, you know, mystical hot guy who actually treats women horribly is like a horrible trope. And I think the same thing about Logan in the show. I think he's a bad cop. I think he sucks with people. I think the reason people love Briscoe so much is because he's paired with his jackal. That's what I think. That he does the same thing, but he's funny when he does it. Exactly. I mean, not that, you know, not that he's a hateable character at all. He's not a Sipowitz. Yeah. I think Sipowitz is more lovable than Logan, to be honest Mm. with you. He's eye candy for the show. I mean, there's always yeah. an, a, a little piece of eye candy for the show, and he is a dick. And he also, you know, besides all the chicks he's banging and all this stuff, he wants to rough somebody up. I mean, how did this crackhead get ahead of him in the first place? <laughs> like, how did he get out of that tiny cell? Yep. And then he, he, Logan is so bruised by yeah. that that he yeah. has to shove food in his face like he's stuffing a pig for dinner. Like, it was just so, so awful. I was like, this guy's a dick. Bye-bye. Can we just give that cameraman, though, like a hero medal? The Sarah. photography in that scene was incredible. Like, Seriously. it was a single shot. Yeah. Follow him out. They obviously had to go way back quickly because, like, the actors came around and toured the camera and the camera moved back at the same pace and it was shaky. So, you know, it was handheld. Yeah. I don't know how many times they had to do that, but good on that camera person. Depends on how many bagels they have. <laughs> also, you know, they throw some shade at our home state. Yes, they do. You know what? One of these days I'm going to pack up a Winnebago. And go where? Upstate. New Hampshire. Right. I spent a year there one weekend. Uh, um, um, fuck you, Jerry Orban. We named this New Hampshire dog after you, you son of a bitch. We've now called him Logan. <laughs> Never. Well, Logan, yeah. Logan wants to come to New Hampshire. Hey, so here again, 25 years before his time, it's executive ADA Ben Stone who says, maybe we shouldn't charge the guy with two murders if we're not positive. Hmm. I'm not convinced he's guilty of anything except being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, I heard the same excuse from a man at Dallas 30 years ago. The next thing you're going to tell me is that Hexter is claiming that he was set up by the CIA. But if he is a pest, it's probably his own responsibility. He won't give us a verifiable alibi. How about there might be a good reason why? I can't explain any of this guy's behavior, but I don't want to wake up a year from now feeling I've made some kind of grotesque mistake. Guess who's been the hero all along? Well, he's white, so of course they're not going to charge him if they're not positive. (laughs) (laughs) Truth. (laughs) How much is Adam Schiff dating himself by comparing everyone to Lee Harvey Oswald? (laughs) 30 years ago, now it's 50. (laughs) Yeah, the thing should be, hey... Throw him a fish. Hmm. Well, that what is he a seal? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Can we please talk about the Bates Motel vibes of uh, glasses guy and his mom. Like yes! they look at the mom, and she's like. He's into horticulture. And there's just a serious, like, Bates Motel situation going on. At least the viewer, I think, is supposed to believe that, right? It's supposed yeah. to feel creepy. Yes. And, and everything would have been fine if she had just told her son... Listen, I love you anyway. I know you're gay. Like, if she had just said that one time, the repression is off the charts in this one. The repression, the creepiness, like, almost Victorian. Like, her hair, like, was just... And he yeah. said, to, instead of just saying he works at a flower shop, it yes. had to be horticulture. And, and somehow he can afford a pied-a-terre in Manhattan, even though he works at a flower shop? What is I, up with that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really a sign of the times, right? Mid-90s that... It was, you know, people can choose when they want to come out, but certainly 
the idea that you would be outed and it would be very shameful. I mean, that was very powerful yeah. at the time. Today, things are different. There are people, you know, maybe don't want to come out. They don't want people to know just yet. That's cool. You know, you got to do you. But you would think that maybe this would be the kind of thing where you would say it so that you get off of a murder charge. Yep. I remember in a very recent SVU episode, they were looking at a guy for kidnapping, and he says, what? i never seen her before. We found her chained up in your house, in your basement. It's not my house. I don't even like women. So what are you saying? You're gay? I wouldn't even kidnap her. I'm gay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, again, yeah, well, we're just going to let you go. It's a different kind of discrimination. It's a different kind of Because if you're really going to have true equality, you have to acknowledge Gays kidnap, too. That's right. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. While this episode covers several crime cases, including the Zodiac Killer of Son of Sam, one of the investigations mirrors the case of Lorena Bobbitt. In June 1993, John Wayne Bobbitt came home after a night on the town and forced his wife to have sex. While he slept, Lorena sneaked into the kitchen, returned with an 8-inch knife and sliced off his penis. When she called 911 to report the attack, she told the police where they could find it. After a massive roadside search, the penis was located, packed in ice and surgically reattached to her husband. While on trial for the assault... Lorena testified John had raped her for years and the ongoing abuse caused her to snap. John Bobbitt was acquitted of rape charges and Lorena was found not guilty by reason of insanity. The bizarre nature of the Bobbitt case made for easy punchlines on the late night shows. In the subsequent years, a more sympathetic picture of Lorena as a domestic violence victim has emerged. Today, she runs a non-profit for women in abusive relationships. Uh, in 2019, USA Today wrote, if Lorena Bobbitt had cut off anything else, we might not know her name. True. True, true or false? True. 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 Absolutely. What always bothered me about this case, it's so, I mean, the sexism and misogyny is so on its face, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you think about back in the 80s, there was that film, The Burning Bed, starring Farrah Fawcett. And right. And she like sets the house on fire right. to kill her. Yep. Uh, and she's yeah. like a hero, right? A, abused, abused wife. Yeah. That, that based on a true story is seen as sort of like a heroic move the fact that it's his dick is something that men just cannot abide by right and so as a result she's vilified He's glorified. He went on to like star in reality TV shows. He was in porno films. Remember that? Yep. I mean, he made money off of being an abuser, and she was a punchline and had to be like locked away for years and years. It is so disgusting on its face. Yeah, and I think it's like one of the maybe say first times in in pop culture that men felt vulnerable. Yeah, comes to. (laughs) No, in all seriousness, man, like, oh, shit. I, I feel don't so want- bad for you, man. <laughs> That's not why I make the point. I, I think it was, like, actually revolutionary. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I remember watching Oprah, you know, after school and, like, them talking about this case and and actually thinking to myself, this is the game changer right here. This is the time where this woman has, you know, flipped the switch for men. So they need to understand that, yeah, we may be capable of a lot more than you think when um, y- you know you've pushed us to the edge. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, it's it's a very sad and and just I don't know. It's a very sad and desperate 
move to do such a thing. But I mean, there's a reason behind it. And that guy, like you said, just went on to profit from it. And then, you know, but I think just like Monica Lewinsky, we've seen that sort of turn around into a positive for her. Mm -hmm. I think Lorena has seen a huge, you know, a positive um, revolution with the Me Too movement. And um, she's become sort of a hero again. So, I mean, everything sort of comes back around Comedy coexists with tragedy, and we have to admit, there's an absurdity to this whole assault. Yeah. The running around, throwing it out the window. It's fantastic. She can't steer. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, both things can be true. I can think it's okay. But is it okay to have a chuckle? At him? Said, Absolutely. At him. He's a okay. rapist. Let's laugh at him all we want. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Hey, if the Lorena Bobbitt trial were today, what would be different? I think he would be on trial, and she probably would cut a deal. That's what I think would happen. She cut a deal? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I saw that. Well, I think she probably still would be charged, and, you know, for the assault portion of- I, mean, I think okay, it depends on hey, what state know, she lives in. You know, penalties on both sides. Okay, but she would still be charged. That would be, the, that would be the trial, again, that the media would cover. But, I mean, would there be a hashtag? What would? What, what do you think would be different in the I, Me Too era? Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely what- it would be like, you know, we're with Lorena. It would be we're with Lorena. Like mm-hmm. we would not yeah. be, it wouldn't be hashtag me too because not everybody cuts off their husband's wee-wees, but whatever. It's like you you want to say we're with Lorena because that woman, the, the lawyer was like, all I need is one woman in that box who's had mm-hmm. any sort of abuse. And it's true today because now everybody is actually talking about it. And you make a point too, and look, let's point fingers. The women's movement did not step up nope. for Lorena, nope. nor for uh, Monica Lewinsky. Like nope, you nope, said. nope. So they have been, they, you know, even well, I don't want to say even today, but it took a nope. long time hear it. for them to come around. No, you still hear it. I mean, you still yeah. hear heard in in the face of hundreds of allegations. Powerful women defending Bill Cosby. You heard powerful women yeah. defending Harvey Weinstein, including Hillary Clinton, who continued to uh, you know let Harvey Weinstein have fundraisers for her. And I think it was more about her than but it was she about heard all him. Of, but yeah. she knew about these allegations and she refused to step up. I mean, this happens over and over again in the podcast Canary. You hear that woman who was friends yep. with the judge saying, you know, this young this woman is seeking publicity by it's not it's not great. Like feminists do not choose the right moments to step up and not step up over and over and over again. It's bad. Uh, as for Bobbitt, uh, you write his penis was reattached. He appeared in the adult films John Wayne Bobbitt Uncut oh. and Buttman at Nudes a Popping 2. Mm. <laughs> uh, naked Buns and Hot Fun in the Ponderosa Sun Club was the uh, log line. <laughs> By the way, there were 21 Nudes a Popping videos, but you know, after two, they sort of, you know, Lost the original magic. <laughs> uh, he was also in one called uh, Franken Penis. Oh, oh! He's been divorced three times, yep. arrested for domestic assault. Yep. Shocker! He's living on disability after a 2014 car accident. Hmm. In his uh, spare time, he hunts for the Fen treasure buried in the Rocky Mountains. That's like a geocache oh, Jesus thing, right? Uh, he denies <sighs> raping Lorena, and he was never convicted of it, but. I'm starting to think this guy's a piece of shit. <laughs> I hope he just gets lost in that geocaching forest forever. Yeah. I hope he gets some Donner Party action over there. Yeah. <laughs> well, if, it, if, it's, if you're going to be cannibalized, I know the first part to go after. Uh, that's going to do it for us. want to thank our guest, Aaron Fox. Where can our listeners follow you online, Foxy? 
You can follow me on Instagram at Aaron underscore M underscore Fox and on Twitter at Squee TV. And Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? On Instagram for dogs and on Twitter for feminist and podcast industry hot tea at Reb Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod or follow us on Instagram at These Are Their Stories Podcast. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. Lily Flynn handles promotions. To get ad-free episodes of These Are Their Stories a week early, sign up for Stitcher Premium. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act Fair Use Exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. Go to lawandorderpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter for a chance to be our next Law & Order Marathon winner. These Are Their Stories was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio. It is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media.